Session Podcast. My name is Brendan. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Kate. Hey, everyone. And Gabby. Hey, guys. We're back for episode nine this week, pre-nuptial. And once again, we've got a special guest. Uh, Joining us today is our friend Chris Person. Hello, Chris. Hi, how's everyone doing? Good, happy to have you. I'm happy to be here. Chris, I think you started watching this show for the same reason about half of the people who watching it uh, watched it, which is because Kate personally bullied them into doing it. Um, <laughs> is, is that accurate? That is not accurate, actually. I was watching it well in <laughs> yes. advance of being bullied, uh, in part because the showrunner uh, co-wrote Four Lions, and that's all somebody had to tell me was, hey, there is a Chris Moore's connection here. And that means it will probably make you uncomfortable, but be very funny. So I was I was watching it. I'd actually dipped off because um, I'm not going to lie. Watching the show is kind of like taking a cleansing bath of acid. It's just like really, really difficult to get through. I like, I like struggled to get through the first half of the season because I had to like take a minute after the episodes were done because I was just pissed off at rich people. Like I just wanted to go to the financial district and take a claw hammer to someone's head every time I finished an episode. <laughs> That's fair. Relatable, relatable. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Chris Morris? Cause he's somebody we touched on way back in episode one of this podcast as, you know, an earlier collaborator of Jesse Armstrong, the showrunner for succession. You mentioned four lions, a film that Armstrong co-wrote with Morris and others. Um, but yeah, who is Morris and what's your fascination with his work? My fascination with Chris Morris, I mean, Chris Morris did uh, The Day Today, or uh, was, was, was on The Day Today at least, and um, more famously Blue Jam, which is, Brass Eye rather, which is a satirical sort of take on the 90s, like, shock uh, news, like, you know, pedophiles are in your closet kind of style of British tabloid television. And then went on to do one of my favorite things that he'd ever done, which is um, Blue Jam, which was a satirical. I would, it's 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 kind of like a like a UCB ketamine style. I don't know how else to put it. Everything just feels very robotic and strange <laughs> and stilted. It's everything is just full of menace, but the punchlines are always very stupid. And it was a, a radio program that aired at night, and it would uh, it was a mixture of like trip hop. D like a trip hop mix that would just transition into like very very troubling troubling sketches usually about like a doctor who has to take like sex calls or something like that or something along those lines and then uh you know obviously he did four lions i i just uh, my fascination with chris morris is that he's one of the meanest and like most cogent i don't know he he gets to something in the soul and i think that extends to people he's worked with and extends to this show specifically which is just this the show hurts me and it hurts me in a way that feels pure and keeps my hate pure at the right people that's interesting yeah um yeah morris is somebody whose influence i think it's you know it's expressed in different ways in those sort of various projects that Armstrong and Iannucci and he have collaborated on over the years that are, you know, as you say, generally these very scabrous sort of takes on the powerful in society or people who are the uh, agents of great crimes, great atrocities um, of terrorism in the case of of Four Lions of Jihad and 
than you know just of the mundane uh evil work of everyday politics and the thick of it and the i'm interested to hear you talk about how you see that in succession because i know that the three of us you know we've talked a lot about it on this podcast but we watch the show in large part not just because it describes the awful things we see in the world but also because we feel some kind of connection to these characters and i'm wondering how how you see that and whether you see any connection uh, for yourself there It's a combination of two things. One is that you have these grander systemic things. I mean, if you're talking about Iannucci and Morris and Armstrong as part of a, um, I guess, less of an auteur theory and more like a a group of people that that describe a mood together, a group of collaborators that describe a mood together, I would say that, like, there is always these grander systemic huge things in what they do, you know, like... uh, but then there's also these tiny, petty, sceny, small things. And the combination of the two pulls you in in a way that's disarming. I was actually working at Vice as like a uh, assistant editor on, on a TV show when I saw um, Nathan Barley, for example. And I believe that Morris worked on. Uh, that, was, that, was, that was partially Morris. And that's just... These tiny little pressure points, these tiny little pain points that are extremely accurate and that are extremely specific that you're like, oh, shit, that is how uh, a hipster circa, you know, England in this time period would do do a thing. Um, And that's how I feel about succession itself is the ways in which, like, say, some a, a rich person would just steal a muffin, for example, without considering that that's a fucked up thing to do because they can just get away with it. And the ways in which uh, <laughs> they would think about like hoarding water in the future and telling a little girl that she's, they're going to, they're going to like, uh, I bought all the water rights in the surrounding town uh, and you and I can have it, but nobody else can like these like tiny, real personal moments combined with bigger, larger picture things. Um, I think get to me. Yeah. I almost think of it as kind of these two poles, right? You know, there's the two extremes where there's the very large scale stuff that's happening and it's being discussed in, as you say, this evocation of the ideas of water wars and climate change, et cetera, that for Connor in that first episode is this kind of funny story he's telling a little kid. And then there's the opposite pole of just kind of the pettiness and the interpersonal slapstick and the petty theft of something like a muffin from a coffee shop. Um, from this guy who makes, you know, seven figures. I think this is similar to Four Lions in the sense that Four Lions was something where I'm like, where is he going with this? Where is he going with this? When is this going to pop off? Like, you know, it's fun, but there's kind of a tension. And then the reveal of what this thing is and the structure of this thing is and the point of this thing is happens very much at the end. They make these things that are kind of long, slow burns leading to something specific. The scene in Four Lions at the end when British intelligence has one of the guys in there and is feasibly, you know, threatening torturous situations. And if I recall correctly, it's like, oh, Egyptians are all outside. We're in Egypt. This is Egypt land. And yet they're in a huge warehouse, which reminded me of, um, what's that guy's name that wrote that manifesto in Timothy real life? McVie. Yes. Timothy McVeigh and how they put his, <laughs> how they put his entire cabin in this huge warehouse. 
Thank you, Brendan. I've, I thought I'm you always... were going to see Raiders of the Lost Ark talking about warehouses. Yeah, I, I haven't seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Bye. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, it, 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 it builds to this point that he's trying to make, um, Chris. Uh, and, and it is a slow burn. And I can see that also happening to the finale of succession and in terms of how much power the rich have. Yeah, it's a, it's a slow burn to those moments, but they're critical in what the show is about or the movie in, in for Lions case. I mean, I think most of these projects that we're talking about, you know, the exception I'm thinking of is, you know, like in the loop, like in the loop, um, Malcolm Tucker decides that the best thing he can do in that situation at the end of the movie, he makes his choice. The best thing he can do is to manipulate events to basically make the Iraq war happens is the horrible choice that he makes is the best thing he can do for his career to gain back some agency is to just make this war that nobody wants happen. But for the most part, these, these projects don't build to any sort of large scale cataclysm. Obviously four lions ends with violence, but it's still relatively small scale. The casualties are minor and it's, more about the absurdism and the fatalism of what these guys set out to do versus the situations they find themselves in. Yeah. Similarly, it's... Succession, when it builds to this big climax, the climax, you know, the casualties are, you know, individual. They're small. They're fatal for one person. You know, it affects the buying of one major corporation by a set of anonymous investors, nothing that people would notice. The, the scale, the stakes are quite personal. I think in these in these cases, like I say, the works operate at these different poles. They use the personal, the minor, the petty to illustrate, to symbolize the large scale violence that these people are responsible for. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's a that's a very fair fair assessment. And and in in your you're correct in the end of Far Lines, like it's the the pettiness and smallness of the act and the place in which they're doing it is is important because it's like it's not like nine eleven, it's not even like Boston in terms of scale. It's like fucking I don't know, like a suburb of Cleveland in England. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 a very like tiny like scale of which they're doing this act. Yeah, and he's blowing up like what is it like a cell phone shop or something like that? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. The look on that actor's face, on Riz Ahmed's face, as he like <laughs> wanders off to his explosive death is just it's really good. It's it's a great moment of just like silent acting as he just looks totally crestfallen and disillusioned and resigned in that moment to go waddle off in this ridiculous costume he's wearing and blow himself <laughs> up for no reason. Not to spend too much on Four Lions, but did you all notice in, like, kind of, like, the credits rolling that Omar and his buddy that had gone to Pakistan, I think, they apparently, when they shut off that missile, killed <laughs> Osama bin Laden. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The most, the most uh, impactful thing they do is done by accident. and nobody uh, Right, totally. And by them being complete imbeciles and like wanting to be cool, and well, it's a very funny gag. And of course, um, the implication is that, as in real life, the death of Osama bin Laden like changes nothing. Basically, events keep moving as they always have been because uh, bin Laden's you know survival is 
really not consequential for the forces that are at work in the Middle East. Also, side note, I can't wait for uh, The Day Shall Come, which is Morris's next film, which has uh, Anna Kendrick and uh, James Adomian's in there, but also and Jim Gaffigan. James, James Adomian, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, one looks, that one looks like a, like a film that would get you killed by the CIA. <laughs> I'm excited. And I know Jesse Armstrong at- also co-wrote that. As well. Yeah, I, I like. I think with all of the with this entire crew of people, you have it's saying avant garde, so like douchey, but like you have they're always at like the critical moment in culture by like a, a good six months to a year. They're always a little bit ahead of where everyone else is, and and that's always fascinating to me. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, I mean in the loop was major. It was like I mean probably the best Bush era satire. Yeah. Um, unless you take uh, like collectively like the Colbert rapport from that era. I also really liked in the loop. Um, <laughs> I mean, sure, these guys are unique and craven politicians and will do whatever it takes, but they also have this alienation of labor, which we see. And one of my favorite scenes is Glenn's meltdown in season one. Of I the am thick more of it. than yeah, in the thick of it. Uh, you know, I'm more than this. I'm more than my work. I'm, you know, it's interesting that they can hit on these very specific characters, but also be relatable. That was one of the major, I think, observations that the thick of it made, which was that these people are responsible for consequential decisions, but really have this very mundane day-to-day existence where they experience very little kind of personal agency and they don't experience anything like, you know, power tripping. They are basically just conducting various mundane office tasks and dealing with petty, you know, inter-office drama. That is their experience of their daily lives, which has enormous far-reaching consequences for the lives of millions of people. But to uh, pivot <laughs> to the show we're here to discuss, I think it's 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 good to talk, Chris. I think about the um, darker elements of you know what's at play in Succession because episode nine prenuptial, which we're talking about today, is I think a very cynical episode in its way, and that it the cynicism really strikes me in just the way that it deals with this concept of marriage. Um, in this wedding, which everybody seems to kind of be winking about the entire time and sort of treating as a joke. You know, uh, Roman refers to it as, like, the big lie that's about to happen. And it's constantly equated with, I think, this idea of the death pit, you know, that we've been dealing with all season, this great, you know, sex abuse scandal that's being covered up in the Parks Department that Shiv is now attempting to use as a chess piece in the battle between Gil Evis and her father. And so that death pit is sort of front and center. And it's equated, I think, with just the idea of these two characters getting married throughout. Yeah, it's a very perverse uh, backdrop to just the pettiest shit on earth. Like, you know, it's it's funny um, that so much uh, like there that, that we have in currently a massive you know, massive sex scandal amongst the re- the wealthy that everyone kind of knew about happening right now 
playing out and like that this is sort of comparable to it this death pit like movement and 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 people are using it for the same sort of cynical ends they're like trying to figure out like okay how can we wield this this as a move you know how can we arrange ourselves around this this awful thing instead of acknowledging how fucking awful it is and how terrible it is and and uh who we can knock out and who we can't knock out it's 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 grotesque but it's also yeah. like it's also this just bizarre uh it's it's bizarre that it's so muted i guess which i think is kind of like similar to like how the iraq war would be this boring banal thing happening in the background of petty drama in you know a thick of a loop um in the loop rather um yeah, it's also interesting because, like, Tom – it's hard to tell if Tom believes that his marriage is going to work. It sounds like he's, like, he's convinced that he isn't, but he's trying to make it work. Like, he's the last one to know. I, I, I don't know. I, I'd be curious what other people think about how in Tom is on even his own marriage. I think in this episode it's sort of implied that uh, Tom and Shiv aren't seeing as much of each other, probably especially since she got involved with Gil's campaign. I am of the mind frame um, that maybe prior to this, he didn't realize, prior to this episode, he didn't realize the extent to which Shiv possibly cheated on him and her detachment from their emotional closeness. And But I came away from this episode thinking, from my point of view, that... Tom knows what he's getting in into. I mean, like with Greg trying to tell him, I mean, what she already had suspected after meeting Nate and uh, Shiv's, he and Shiv's conversation in their hotel room, which I don't think was all that convincing via Shiv. He just doesn't want to look at it. It's just too painful for him to face. And he's got so much invested in this because he sincerely loves Shiv. But also, he wants to be Tom Roy. Um, (laughs) Which he mentions at the beginning of the episode. And he's talking about possible surnames in the car with Shiv. And he's like, you know, or we can go modern day. I'm happy to be Tom Roy, you know. So Yeah, and I think a lot of, like, regular people who watched this episode were sort of, like, jarred by Shiv's general just disinterest in her own wedding. Like, your last name and, and you know, stuff like that, you would presume in, in most marriages that's something that you've talked about the day, you know, more, earlier than the day before your wedding. Um, but they just kind of, like, bring it up in the car and Shiv is obviously, like, super cavalier about it. You know, barely even registers that Tom is talking about it. She blows off the idea of, like, needing to rehearse because it's the rehearsal dinner evening. Yeah, so she, I mean, essentially is mining Tom for, like, oppo research for her career to, you know, take down her dad um, on what's supposed to be, like, you know, the most, you know, romantic weekend of her life. But, you know, Shiv doesn't traffic in romance. Um, You know, she traffics in power. And so I feel really bad for Tom in this episode. I know some people might have watched this episode and felt, like, annoyed by Tom in that he clearly knows by the end of the episode what's going on, but doesn't stick up for himself. But um, I just feel like he has put himself in such a corner where it's just he is not in any position where 
um, he can just pick up and leave right now. Like this is it. Um, he yeah. also now is is implicated with the death pit stuff, and so you know what can he do? And so I think Tom is pretty has a pretty high capacity for denial, and I think he's going to kind of just ride yeah. that wave for as long as he can. But you know, after the conversation that he has with Nate. Um, where he genuinely doesn't know who Nate is, and Nate's trying to kind of like nudge him and say, you know, used to fuck your girl, even though it's much worse than that. <laughs> uh, Tom's kind of just like, oh yeah, right, Nate. Um, he he genuinely doesn't know who he is, and then um, you know the wheels kind of start to turn, and and you know Greg gets in his face about it. But yeah, I mean, you know for me, um, this really showed just kind of like how deep. Tom has um, spiraled into this death pit, literally. Both the marriage and and the actual death pit. Yeah, and also, I don't know how bad... It's interesting, as with any of these characters, you can only feel so bad for any of them, except Greg. I like Greg. Greg's Greg's fine. (laughs) But, like, you know... And Kendall! And and Kendall, yeah, sure. (laughs) Okay. I'm, like, the only Kendall. Uh, All right. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> I feel like we have to fuck, that have to have, fuck that one waiter. I feel like we have to have the same conversation <laughs> waiter, about yeah. sort of like audience sympathy every time we every time we do this show. We're all agree that these characters are all guilty or complicit in some level of awful things. What the show does, you know, through kind of just like prolonged exposure and showing how sort of isolated and trapped they are by their way of life, you know, just sort of even accidentally engenders sympathy, I think. Yeah, yeah, and also, also just like I forgot that Tom's last name is Wamsgans. <laughs> yeah, like, that was so good. That's like the best fucking. Like he's got he's such a square. Like his his head looks like like a cranberry sauce that just like fell out of a can. Like it's just so he's just <laughs> such a square headed dude. And Wamsgans just like is like a fucking bad Scrabble hand. And of yeah. course he wants to be a Roy, and of course he wants to be powerful. And like this when when the when that sort of like ha- like pulled out of the ass poly shit happens, the fact that he's willing to like kind of go along with it, but not really, but kind of be devastated by it is like, yeah, of course he'd do that. He's a worm, you know. He's a yeah. he's a little worm. He's a little worm boy uh, who has emotions, but you know, can I give a shit about him? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> you know, <laughs> sort of sometimes. Something I found episode. interesting was when his parents arrive. He refers to both his dad and mom as mommy and daddy. <laughs> and they call oh, him yeah. Tommy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which I didn't notice initially. Uh, but I think it speaks to, you know, a larger issue here. Probably something that the Roys themselves, well, I was going to say struggle with, but I think he actually achieved, uh, can get the recognition and validation from his parents that the Roy's can't from Logan. But um, I thought that was just such a funny moment that this grown man calls his mom and dad, mommy and daddy, and they call him Tommy. It's just a little weird. This episode really kind of brings up the question for the viewer of what Chris was talking about earlier. Like what exactly is the, the actual deal with um, Shiv and Tom and, and, do they love each other? What does that love look like? Is there any possibility this relationship works out? I think clearly not. You know, Tom's first confrontation when he brings Shiv upstairs, and it's it's interesting that they repeat sort of the same thing 
um, in the final episode, essentially 24 hours later in the same room, but after they've been married, you know, he, he does ask her point blank, do you really want to do this? You know, cause we, we don't have to. Um, and Shiv just like really does not seem to understand that he is in this for love. And she just has absolutely no consideration for like what the magnitude of a marriage contract, you know, means for somebody and for, it doesn't have to mean much to her, but for someone like Tom, um, as we've talked about, like his position in this family and in the company is precarious because it, it has essentially like hinged on his relationship with, um, you know, his unfaithful girlfriend, fiance, and soon to be wife. You know, so for her, it, you know, it just doesn't really matter. Tom is is disposable. But there's an interesting line when Shiv says, "When I met you, I was in such a mess. I need you," um, and she says something along those lines also in the same conversation they have 24 hours later. But that struck me as interesting and maybe um, telling us something about um, why Ship got into a relationship with Tom to me that sort of read as like um, she was heartbroken and needed somebody who worshipped at her altar and who she could trust was going to be there and that she could take off and do her own thing and and create distance when she needed it emotionally, um, but be able to come back to that. So I don't know. But but that's how I read that. And and I think she does absolutely need Tom because he fulfills something for her in terms of a stability that she needs while also um, essentially being a doormat. But she doesn't want him. I don't know. I think um, it's it's I mean, it's a very complicated question. Um, but, you know, what this episode really reminded me of as I rewatched it was just like almost like one of these these horror movies where there's like a ritual sacrifice, like the wicker man or something where Tom is the square Sergeant Howie who is summoned to this Island in the UK and uh, where there's all these strange rituals going on. And eventually he's the one who is kind of immolated at the end as this sacrifice to these people's way of life. You know, this wedding is something that just kind of has to happen. And Tom has to sacrifice basically his personhood you know, and his, you know, his desire for basically basic human needs, attention, love, kindness. He has to sacrifice all of that to be to be part of this. Um, and that was what I just wedding. kind of saw. It's it's like the Bohemian Grove version of a wedding. Like there there there's going to be a big owl and a stump or some shit, and like <laughs> the the illusion of a ceremony. But it's a, it's play acting for rich people, and like everyone's aware of the the, the fiction. Everyone is aware that this is like not real, but it's it's a, it's it's ceremonial in more than one sense. Everybody seems to be alluding to the fact that they don't think this is real. They don't really give a reason why. It's not like everybody is winking about Nate specifically or winking about an affair. They just take it for granted that there's no way that Shiv really loves Tom. I think they understand Shiv on a level that she doesn't understand herself. And a scene I found very interesting, and I hadn't noticed this in the beginning, and my first few rewatches, but when Shiv is in the pool room with Jerry, uh, and they're negotiating the deal about the cruise cover-up, Shiv says, you know, Tom has to come out clean from this, which, you know, I respected that she gave him a shout-out. And then, like, two sentences later, she says, well, maybe he could be abroad. 
Yeah, exactly. Pitch. Yeah, that's that's the dream that he gets clean and then he gets away somewhere so she can right. And she life. doesn't have to deal with him whatsoever, be with him, or it, yeah. oh, it's by the way that by the way that pool room scene where they're discussing a far-reaching conspiracy of sexual abuse. I mean, come on, mm-hmm. is this an eyes wide shut reference or what? It's like what? Yeah, it's like watching people like make dinner while talking about Pizzagate shit. <laughs> It's just, it's like, it's like severely fucked up things, like, denigrated to, like, picking up your laundry. Like, you know, this is, this is a task that's been set out for them that's emotionally very jarring to everyone who has to touch it, who actually has to carry that information. Uh, But to them, it's just like, oh, could you just, like, go pick up some, like, seltzer from the store? You know, they, 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 they treat it so casually like it's transactional you touched on chris how like remote the treatment of the death pit material is and that's for a couple of reasons i think you know they don't ever talk about the actual victims or even what actually happened you they keep the idea of what actually happened very nebulous so that um, and that allows them to use it as this sort of larger idea of this you know, just this pit, this thing that is going to swallow them. And that allows it to stand in for this idea of marrying into this family. And eventually the idea that the Roys themselves are the pit that is going to swallow everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's it. It's, it's just, it's, it's, I mean, like, what, what are they going to do about it? You know what I mean? Like they're, they're, it's just going to continue to be there uh, until they take care of it or capitalize on it, which is even more disgusting. I don't know. I, I, these people are bad. These are not good people. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy that they've even built Gil up to be sort of this, like, virtuous foil uh, as, like, this progressive candidate, even though we, we've seen him be somewhat cynical and he is working with Shiv Roy. But even his desire in this episode for um, the death pit information and, again, like, completely distancing himself from from the actual substance of it and, and what it means is you know, a really dark commentary on, on power and on people's ability to, um, you know, to sanitize vicious, horrific crimes. Yeah, he's, he's Sandersian in certain ways, but, like, in other ways, he's very, like, centrist Democrat. Like, in the ways in which you would be, tra- like, transactional about that as a politician feels very, like, specifically, like, democratic. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm no, just, No, I think like... there's, a, there's a definite, dis- like, distinction. I don't think any of us think of him directly as, like, a Bernie analog. But I think for viewers, maybe um, this might be, like, the first moment where they um, are kind of shocked by by Gil's, you know, sort of nasty behavior. But I don't know. I, do you guys want to talk about Gil and, and what's going on here? Well, there's there's one detail in this episode about Gil that we get that we didn't know before that I really like uh, because I think it's very telling and I'm not sure if this is the way they intended it. But there's the scene on the stairwell. And let me just say this episode, I really love the way this episode is structured as these tiny, this like mosaic of one on one conversations. It is it, it mostly takes place at this long sort of rehearsal dinner after party uh, sequence where everybody's in the same location. But you end up just seeing all these tiny one on one conversations. And one of the most significant ones is the one between Gil and Logan and Gil has a line during that encounter where he says, you don't need to read Adam Smith to me. You know, I taught economics. And I just thought that was so funny because that's so different from like, A, you know, 
who Bernie Sanders is. Like, Bernie Sanders is not an econ professor, so that differentiates his biography from the fictional character right there. And that also just struck me as such a quintessentially, like, almost Sorkin-esque biographical detail where, like, President Bartlett on the West Wing was, like, yeah, he was, like, an economist, priest, or whatever. It's the, like, philosopher king model. Um, So I think that's a very sort of telling difference between who Gill is and who the sort of real-life equivalent would be this person who taught economics and has this academic background is also the person who is more likely to strike a deal with the devil it's a very weird uh amalgamation of character traits to put in with one person you know what i mean like it's very like i don't know it feel, feel, feels like um kind of like a european politician i, I don't know it's he's very very uh he doesn't scan one-to-one to anyone I know, but 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 it but it's very fascinating. The argument could be made he is a Bernie analog, but in this world they live in and succession and inhabit, uh, cynicism always wins, right? And compromising always wins. But I what one of the things I appreciate the show and we've talked about this a lot is it's never completely specific, you know, like this is Bernie or this isn't. But I think you could interpret it either way. You know, that this is a Bernie-type character who, in this world, you know, has to succumb to compromise and and cynicism. Yeah, it's a strange kind of exercise. You know, we've talked a, we've talked a bit about Gil in the last couple episodes. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because the show takes this tact of combining traits of multiple real life figures to get you know logan and kendall these people who are sort of composite characters of say lachlan murdoch and donald trump jr or donald trump and sumner redstone etc but there's really only one person that gill is referring to (laughs) so you can't really you know imagine you can't really make the same imaginative leap of like oh he's somebody else because you're just all continually drawn back to that one person. So it's very hard to get this character out from, you know, the shadow of Bernie Sanders. And that's why I'm not sure if he totally works as his own character, um, because all his sort of character traits just seem, you know, ultimately like kind of distractions to get you to not think of Bernie as much. But I think you're right, Kate, that, um, you know, for this universe to work the way it has to, this fundamentally tragic story to take place in this universe, there can't really be a Sanders figure who represents something like hope of breaking this cycle of, you know, crushing mundane politics that represent just kind of perpetual violence and exploitation. Um, there can't really be that symbol of hope. It, it has to be reintegrated into the cycle at some point, as Gill ultimately is by the deal he strikes with Logan. Do you guys want to talk about a Lady Caroline Collingwood? Yeah, I would love to. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it was interesting when you said a few minutes ago, Brendan, that a lot of this episode is formed around these one-on-one conversations um, and, you know, consequential one-on-one conversations. And I think what I sort of picked up on in the rewatch was that a lot of these conversations were sort of driven by the women on the show. And uh, I thought that was a little bit different. Obviously, like, this is a show that centers men. Um, I don't think the show has much to do with feminism. Um, We've talked about how the show doesn't really explicitly traffic in any sort of politics. And it just, it doesn't have 
the capacity to sort of establish a framework for feminism, but there's a lot of very formidable uh, female personalities at play in this episode, which I think we don't see enough of. And if I can sort of gauge from some of the season two news and, and um, marketing, it seems like they are going to ramp up um, women's roles on this show. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean that these are women that we want to lionize or um, are worthy of affection, but they certainly um, have quite a bit of agency. And, and, and we can see definitely in this episode that none of the women here are submissive or particularly deferential to the men around them. And there's a lot of confrontation. And um, I think this episode works really well in showing in, in the ways that and showing the ways that women in the show kind of serve to reveal and expand upon the insecurities and weaknesses of the Roy kids. So um, we see this throughout the season, but it's more piecemeal here. It's, it kind of is, you know, there are, there are multiple interactions that, that sort of embody this. So in this episode, we get Tabitha and Roman, we get Rava and Ken, we get Willa and Connor, we get Shiv and Marsha, we get Carolyn and Shiv, we get Shiv and Jerry. So, you know, I just want to kind of note uh, the, the role of women in, in this show, because I think maybe some people are turned off by it being so male-centric, and this might be sort of the beginning of the show's pivot to, um, you know, kind of giving a little bit more um, power to, to the women in the show and, and moving away from just um, Shiv and, you know, maybe Marsha being the, the primary women character. So... Uh, uh, bringing us to the mother of Shiv, Roman, and Kendall. Very exciting. First time we get to meet her. And she is played by the incredible Harriet Walter, who was in the movie Atonement. She's also in shows like Downtown Abbey, which I haven't seen, but have been recommended to me. She's also in the Royal Shakespeare Company. She's a real, like, stage Okay, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. Similarly to Brian Cox, who's also in the, um, also a great Shakespearean actor. And I, I just love that they cast sort of an actor of sort of equal sort of weight to yeah, play I mean, his, I, I play his have, ex. I couldn't have conceived of somebody better to fill this role and come in kind of late in the season. So we've really had to you know, been left to our own devices to sort of fill in the gaps about what the Roy mom, you know, not Connor's mom, but um, what this woman must be like. And, and you know, it's, <laughs> she's also um, in Call the Midwife. She was in The Crown as um, Clementine Churchill, and she did great there, although it's a much more muted performance. Um, but yeah, I like The Crown. It's coming back soon. Olivia Colman, Peep Show alum. She's had a pretty big year, um, so you guys can make fun of me for watching The Crown, but it's going to be the shit with Olivia <laughs> Coleman. That is really good. I've I seen parts past, of it. I have in the past watched The Crown. I am not current on The Crown. I, I agree with your assessment. I understand. I, like there, I think there was a, like very valid criticism about the show and sort of being male dominated, but the ways in which women are present is so fascinating to me. Like the ways in which they also sort of share an attitude. Maybe it's one note, but it's like it's a it's a similar conclusion, uh, which is just very matter of fact. They're like they've done the calculus of what 
being a woman in this environment is. And they're very aware of what they are in this space and what they have to be in this space. And they have to be twice as smart and twice as cruel in certain ways to do that. Like, you know, whenever... When Roman's talking about like you know what well, fuck it why don't we get married she's like what the fuck are you talking about you know like you know yeah. it's 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 very like you know oh yeah this is this is a good marriage it really is it you know what I mean like everyone every woman in this space is just like the fuck are you talking about like because all of these people are just selfish and petty and shitty uh, and bad yeah, exactly. including themselves so we see we see the callouts even by you know the the characters who are who've chosen to be in the family, but again, they're, they're very much aware of what that means. And we see Willa kind of take Connor down a peg. Uh, we see Tabitha sort of expose some of Roman's, you know, major <laughs> psychosexual issues and intimacy issues. Um, you know, and then Caroline, my God. So Lady Caroline Collingwood is her name. Um, she is a lady, so she's royalty, even though it's a lower tier. But um, she, I mean... <laughs> It is a testament to wealth that um, the kids' dysfunctions and mental illnesses are not worse than they are because, holy shit, she is, it's like death by a thousand cuts. Um, You're kind of like thrown off because she is charming and she kind of has this, you know, this way about her that is um, almost endearing, but then it's like a fucking dagger. Like when she sees Tom for the first time and she goes... You're very plausible. I was like, plausible. oh, my God. That's like, oh. <laughs> and then why are you marrying him? Oh, my God. After if, he if, goes if inside. If at me and said, you're very plausible, I think I would have just, I would have gotten on the next plane. I mean, it was a dagger. And, and uh, there's, a, there's a good line later in the episode when uh, after an exchange with Tom, Tom's talking to Shiv and he goes, I think I just got knifed by right. your mother. And she goes, oh, that's how it right. works. You'll bleed out in about an hour. Right, which is how, how she thinks which about reminded me. She gets it. Like, and, but, but also, it's really important on like a more serious note that we finally do see who raised these kids um, in terms of a mother figure. We, we know Logan quite well, but you know we've been waiting for this. And you know she's just absolutely built for this role. But um, it sort of affords us a little bit more sympathy for the Roy kids, however much that sympathy is obviously rooted in like what we know about them. But children are innocent. So no matter what they've turned into, um, what they had to endure with these two as their parents was never their fault. Um, And it's perfectly reasonable that they are extremely fucked up. Um, And it's, it's, it's really sad. I mean, we see also that Caroline is sort of jealous. Um, she makes some snarky remarks about Marsha. I think she calls her, she calls her uh, Logan's um, head of Middle Eastern operations. Head of Middle yeah. Eastern operations. During, yeah. during, during the rehearsal, the priest kind of asks like where the bride's father is. And she's like, he couldn't be bothered. So, so we really That's get a great. sense of what Logan and Caroline's marriage was probably like. It was probably awful i don't imagine that they divorced because of you know um you know in a calm sort of (laughs) um i I imagine there was a lot of volatility involved there and the kids bore witness to a lot of it and we know that caroline has been involved for a long time because um connor mentions being in this um english countryside at, at her house 
when they were children. We know Jerry says, oh, the last time I was here, you know, it was like the 80s. So, you know, she's been around for a while and, and she's, you know, incredibly callous and she kind of gave me Lady Macbeth vibes. And I know it was referenced by Roman in an earlier episode about Jerry, Lady Macbeth, but if there was anybody fit for a Lady Macbeth role, I think um, uh, Harriet Walter is, uh, you know, definitely built for it. Although Marsha is nothing to sneeze at in this episode either. And just yeah, a funny and- aside, when I was looking at... Um, Harriet Walters IMDb credits I saw that she did play Lady Macbeth in a 2001 TV movie but I think she of you course. know in the world of reboots and and uh and remakes you know maybe um you know she'll she'll get some you know high production value Lady Macbeth role but um clearly the kids did not have any model of a healthy relationship no. and um it's you know we've known that but meeting Caroline it's you know it's very much laid bare I, I found it really interesting that most of the boys or men, specifically Roman and Con- Roman and Roman Connor and Kendall, are all conflict averse, right? Like they don't they don't want to go there. They won't go there, and yet Shiv, who of course is the most like her father, Logan. Is, is, like, ready, able, and willing to take on, you know, uh, the conflict. In fact, when Logan originally wasn't coming to the wedding, you know, we, we kind of get a sense that Roman, when he's talking to Jerry, was hoping that Shiv would have come crawling or begging, those are the, his words, uh, to invite him. But I do also like that, on some level, it could be seen as a fault that you don't see... Uh, their mother for so long, but I also do think that the impact of waiting until the very end, yes, uh, really does just unleash just subtly how how big a deal she, her her lack of presence in the entire series is. When she hears that uh, Logan is co- is now officially coming, she's like, "I hope you'll have time, you know, to talk to me." Which, you know, again, speaks to probably the lack of attention she had in her marriage um, and how dominating Logan was as a father, I can only imagine. Yeah, Um, and speaking to her evilness, like, we should mention that she's a huge part of this episode, that she's literally walking around the rehearsal dinner party uh, (laughs) and activities, asking people, how long do you give it in reference to... um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to Shiv and Tom's marriage, which is just, there are no words. I, um, it's, <laughs> it's not all so about you, bad. Shiv. I need and to then, sparkle. Right. Other people need something to say. I mean, she's just incredible. And, she, you know, she's sort of jabbing at Shiv throughout the episode, and the two of them are sort of going toe to toe. And, um, it's the first time, you know, we see a, a, a mother daughter relationship on succession and, and Shiv with her mother. You know, we see that she's very much like her dad and that. You know, she's ruthless. She's completely self-interested. Um, you know, she's able to detach. You know, she's she's playing a game, and um, she plays the same types of games that, that Logan plays. But, you know, once it becomes um, news that Logan's going to show up, um, Lady Caroline says to Shiv, um, you know, oh, you know, what do you think about Marsha? She's still kind of, you know, uh, and Shiv lies, and she's like, actually, you know, we got rather close while Dad was sick, and... You know, her mom, you know, she obviously says that to hurt her mom's feelings and her mom is kind of like, oh, you know, well, at least you won't be the, uh, you know, the 
the you'll be the second most important night person at your wedding, which is you know another dagger. But then it's interesting because when she it does circle around at the end, and and Ship has that confrontation with her stepmom, just you know hurling insults at her in French and <laughs> going back code switching languages. Shiv is clearly rattled by it and she comes down the stairs and she's upset and her mom is there and you do see a genuine look of concern on Caroline's face and she says, you know, it's okay. And we don't really see what happens after that, but, you know, it is, I think, interesting that they just included that little detail where, you know, again, we're reminded no matter how just like obscenely cruel and sadistic these people are, they none of them are sociopaths, you know. So in a moment like that, Caroline might have had a, a you know genuine flicker of um, you know goodwill and maternal instinct towards Shiv. Um, and I think you know the show is very wise to sort of include those little moments of the reality of, of human relationships and the complexity, especially ones as as heavy as this. Well, if you think about the the contrast between. Marcia and Caroline what really disturbs Shiv and the reason she's so rattled I think a big part of it is that nobody speaks this way to Shiv right and nobody has ever spoken this directly to her insulted her in this way like like yes she suffered probably an awfully emotionally withholding and possibly abusive relationship with her own mother but what kind of abuse is that it's very passive aggressive you know it's withholding nobody has really directly confronted and hurled insults at shiv like this before that's what really rattles her and that's the difference between marcia and caroline it's just that that level of confrontation is just something that i don't think shiv experiences that line i th- i know a spoiled slut when i've seen one Woo! <laughs> That was yeah. rough. Yeah. She she also has that really menacing way she delivers that line when she says, "You don't know how vulnerable a human being can be," um, which is just incredibly suggestive. And I... the thing I really like about well, I I was well, I was gonna return to the line where Caroline says, "His head of Middle Eastern operations," and I think the way you initially hear that. And the way I think probably most people left it is that it's just an awful racist joke at Marsha's expense. Um, but if you think about what we know or don't know about Marsha's sort of history and what's being hidden about her and what's suggested, I think, in the finale about her role in the company and how she seems to actually have eyes in a lot of places and how she seems to find out about Shiv's investigation into her without um without Shiv knowing about it you know it it raises the question for me of is Marsha some kind of spy master did she have some kind of operation she's running for Logan and is that uh more than a simple slur that Caroline's making um and just and that can I, she eat a grapefruit without an agenda yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was, and that, that idea of just how vulnerable a person can be, you know, I think is just suggestive of, you know, where does Marsha come from and what, what kind of work has she done in the past? And it's it's just very chilling because we still don't know a lot. Yeah. But I think these two episodes suggest a lot that's very menacing about her. I mean, Marsha's really good in the, in the very beginning of the show is coming across as very precious and and sweet you know, by the time we reach these episodes and, and just 
um, the way she kind of she smirks at, at Gil when um, Logan responds to the the economics professor commenting where kindergarten she you know rips Shiv apart the night of her rehearsal dinner totally um, just infantilizes her insults her you know the one bizarre thing is just how Kate Kate I know has talked about this before how solid the love between Marsha and Logan seems to be it seems to be like <laughs> the best relationship on the show in terms of trust and genuine affection and and you gotta wonder man like <laughs> who falls in love with a guy like Logan Roy and and will defend him to the point of verbally abusing you know his precious daughter um Marsha is she's shady yeah well, I think with so many of the characters, there's, like, duplicity at play. They may not even be conscious of it. For example, Tom, who sincerely loves Shiv, I won't, I, I absolutely believe that, but also is just intoxicated by becoming a Roy. Um, and, and though that may not factor in consciously in some of his decisions, I think there's a duplicitousness with all characters, including Greg, uh, which, by the way, um, I know I've said in previous episodes, I thought maybe he was overrated. Peer pressure, I'm, I'm kind of considering uh, retracting that position. He has some really great lines in this episode. Is doubt afoot? And he calls Caroline... Your Excellency. Your Majesty. <laughs> <laughs> or your excellency yeah. she like says I his mean, full name as if saying Gregory Hirsch sounds more refined than just Greg Hirsch <laughs> right and then he gets immediately shut down as Greg the egg right oh, and your, your dad Greg the egg Salsalito <laughs> yeah the line about his dad's great he's so funny and then that was the dad line really fucked me up I, I love that one so much you're like oh yeah your dad's gay what <laughs> <laughs> these, exactly. these people oh, yeah. have no concern for you know the devastation they wreck uh and constantly do with like the quote-unquote innocence although we learn none of these characters are innocent including greg i mean even when she brings greg inside and she goes these are all my disreputable slave owning ancestors like she says it like it's funny and you're like it's again, it's like the death pit. Like it's this is not a fucking joke, man. Like you guys are standing on on hollowed grounds, but um you know, there's there's a a distance that they've built where um he's like, "Wow, you know, it's beautiful." <laughs> and there's also the bit in this episode about how the castle they're in isn't actually Caroline's and it was like her right. it was like her brothers uncle, who swindled yeah. their grandfather out of it. And so Caroline has this, like, resentment and jealousy of the place. Um, you know, Connor has this association where it's like, we weren't allowed to go here when I was a kid. But then, obviously, he's older than the others. And the, and the younger three siblings all have memories of that place. And they have, you know, they have their spot, the little sort of boathouse, the little boat that they gather in towards the end, which is a really kind of sweet scene that... Arguably you know, the sweetest me. moment of the show, I would say. Yeah, it reminds me of that that scene in Austerlitz where, you know, Roman and Ken are in the car and, you know, Ken's really high yep. and you're not sure how, like, genuine the bond between them in that scene is. But, you know, that, that scene is like, yeah, like you say, it's this arguably the most 
sincerely sweet and emotional scene in the, in the show where there's just this sense that the three of them have been through this awful thing right. together of their childhood and they've survived it. And that's, you know, something to celebrate. And that's something to take some well, joy and solace in. And Gabby's mentioned this before, but even just Roman getting the pin and then going immediately to pick him up is touching um, from the wolf pack. In Austerlitz, yeah. In yeah, in Austerlitz, thank you. I do want to talk about Roman also, because Roman Roman, Roman really kills me in this episode, because he has, he has a couple of great scenes where um, the one where he just kind of, you know, you have to feel bad for him because it's so endearing the way that uh, he corners Ken at the bar after Ken's conversation with Logan and goes, what are you guys, talk- what are you guys talking about? And Ken goes, oh, we were just talking about what a great job he thinks you're doing. And Roman's like, Oh, really? Was he? You know, like, oh, uh, was he talking about the launch? And Ken just, like, laughs at him and walks away. And then there's the scene later where uh, Caroline just, like, offhandedly says of Tabitha, oh, I like her. You should marry that one. And then Roman goes and, like, proposes to Tabitha. Yes. She's brushing her teeth. More Roman psychosexuality. I mean, you have to imagine that, that she's probably been since the kids were very young, overly involved in kind of like their romantic lives, you can tell there's uh, really no boundaries. Um, And she probably spoke to her kids about, you know, sex and romance and and dating from a very young age. And um, we see, you know, the last couple episodes, Roman's, um, you know, psychosexual issues and inadequacies. And um, this dynamic with Tabitha, who really just is actually unlike so many of the other characters who get um, involved in the family isn't really doesn't really seem to be all that swept away by the power and the and, and sort of the romance of the wealth of the Roys. Um, she says has a great line where she says I, I'm just pathologically incurious. You know I think she shows that that Roman it's really it's it's a sexual issue. He does want to be close to somebody, but we've picked up on it a few recordings about um, Roman kind of talking about his parents when he's talking about relationships. Oh, dad would have found her so attractive. And, you know, and that was about Tabitha, by the way. It was. That's right. Caitlin yeah. Fitzgerald, by the way, who um, I first uh, saw her in Masters of Sex, which was on Showtime several years ago. It was a pretty good show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, she she was the the wife in that show, but yeah, this very this show's very so, charming, very charming. She's actress. very she's charming and very personable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could see how Roman would, would be falling in love with her, but yeah, there's that very sort of um, astute line, which sort of reminds me of other lines in the show that end scenes, like when Shiv says, you know, um, in, in an earlier episode, "Don't you want to just, you know, wake up and not feel like a piece of shit?" And then the scene ends, and it's kind of jarring. And and this happens in the scene with Tabitha and Roman, where he's like, "What if I was prepared to marry you?" and you know, she's like, what are you talking about? You know, we barely have sex. I've seen you sort of jerk off maybe once. And he's like, don't be disgusting. <laughs> and, um, Weirdly, I think that could work. I mean, like, yeah, I don't, I, 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 like of all the, of course, all the relationships yeah. on this show, like, like Connor's is the most fucked up. Chris, I think you brought just this line up earlier, just that 
to, to wrap that scene when she looks at him pointedly and kind of says, babe, do you really think this is the way to get someone to stay? You know, as and he's, it's, it's her as really he's starting to jerk off, by the way, it's he looks like he's starting to jerk off Look, in that scene. It's yeah. it's a term. <laughs> it's a way of affection. He's just saying like, hey, maybe we should be more intimate. I no, mean, I like, like no, I mean, like he's he's a huge piece of shit and he's like a weirdly like right wing peppy psychosexual guy. But of like I I kind of approve of his like actual vulnerability more than Kendall's you know like Kendall seems like he's like convinced himself that he has to be this like shark tank asshole whereas Roman is just like Roman I identify with more (laughs) just because a he's funnier and he has better lines but also because he's just like (laughs) yeah like of all the characters I think uh, a lot of people are with you there Chris yeah yeah, well of all the characters like Roman is the one that like is the closest to what most people would be in this scenario it's like somewhere between Roman and Shiv it's just like I don't know damage control people to be happy He's just like emotionally like vulnerable and it. feels like he needs to like like drive a Ferrari into a ditch some, <laughs> somehow. You know, like that's like that's whatever. Sure, yeah, fucking why not? Yeah, and he's probably the most likely to have like a stable relationship eventually with somebody who just like mm-hmm. isn't gonna put up with this shit and knows who exactly who he is and can't. I think that's the thing about that scene I like is that she can't really like. She doesn't. She's not really giving him what he desires consciously, but is giving him what he wants, which is just like somebody to be like, I don't. You you you, you have nothing for me. It's like, oh okay. <laughs> it's just like yeah, it's I have, funny. He knows how to relate to people and read people, and which Kendall absolutely doesn't. Um, I think he's more self-aware than he lets on. There are moments throughout the season that you know, highlight this, for example, his uh, dinner with Lawrence of Walter to try to get him on Team Kendall for the board meeting. And, you know, he says, I'm, I'm stupid, but I'm smart. And just the way he relates to characters or even at the diner prior in the episode when they're talking about the takeover uh, before episode six, you know, he's like, uh, if I ordered a Cordado, would I be like a total asshole? You know, and or no resp- yeah, <laughs> yeah, and no response. And so he's like, "I'll take a black coffee." Whereas any of these other assholes, including Stewie, you, they just wouldn't have that intuitiveness, that perspicacity. The thought that that went through my mind when um uh when Tabitha was like, "Well, we never fuck." And Roman was like, oh, come on. Yeah, we do. The thought that went through my mind was like, wait, does he know what that is? <laughs> does he think it's something else? Well, I mean, he did get his last lady off with a, a vibrating phone. So <laughs> sure he's out. <laughs> Which, by the way, I think in this episode, to me, it appears he was never married to Grace. Because after he suggests the marriage... To Tabitha, he's like, well, Shiv's getting married. Kendall's been married. And yeah, I, I think that they 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 actually addressed this and that it, it was something that um, changed kind of as the season went on. They didn't really know which way they were going to go with Grace. That's why they left it vague. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think retroactively now, um, 
you it's know. the easier explanation. It, yeah, and, it, and it's great. I mean, the relationship with Tabitha is it's it's really interesting, and maybe want to. It looks about... like she's uh, it looks like she's back in season two, Yay. and uh, in the inner circle. From what the promos seem to suggest, is that she's she's in those sort of uh, family meetings. So maybe so they, talk... maybe they do tie the knot. Yeah, maybe they maybe they will though. I, that would be cute. Do we want to talk really quick about Connor and and Willa because she kind of brings him oh, down please. in this episode, and it's it's. It's weird, no? Yeah, it, yeah. Willis sets off one of the best uh, it's funny. Connor mini rants uh, yeah. by uh, saying to the, <laughs> the parson or whatever, you know, oh, Connor doesn't really do anything. And then Connor's like, yeah. what is all the stuff that Connor says? He goes, you know, safeguarding 30,000 acres of wilderness. So that's nothing. Being on so the verge good. of setting up a podcast on Napoleonic history with a considerable amount of investment interest. That's nothing. Cracking the nut of happiness like a modern day Thoreau. That's nothing. It's the one of the best, like meanest, true things that she could say. Because he is really, he really is a useless person. I hate him so yeah. much. I hate him like actively throughout the show. No, he's like he's... Our low key one of like the the worst, the worst archetype of a, of a rich person. Just yes, a Just... lot of people I think are coming around on that because he's very funny, but like. Is, he's extremely dangerous, and like now he wants to run for president. <laughs> he, he, I was he, hoping his... we got that Gil, uh, that that's Gil in the finale scene in this in this episode, but that's not till next one. Yeah. I his like his ass in the about, about Connor. Yeah, I'm sorry, Chris. No, just his, his, his like his weird like flat tax proposal. Like he's his in, his insistence on politics that like is just fucking incoherent and very like you know uh, has a, a you know naturalistic, but also just like what what, what the, he has a line somewhere along there. I think it might be in this episode or the next episode where he believes in like a, like a flat tax and then one uh, and then not jacking off i think it's really just it's it's <laughs> he's he's the fucking like war, he's the most useless because he doesn't want to perpetuate wealth he doesn't think he, he thinks he's better than wealth he's like the kind of guy who 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 like does lsd and gets absolutely nothing from it and like doesn't want to build wealth he just like he's just like oh what if uh what if uh what if we introduced a flat tax like you know it's just like like Joe Rogan adjacent survival bucket shithead. I like, I hate him so much. I love it. And he's just like, he's like, well, we're going to need solar panels and also uh, my survival compound. You know, it's, it's insane. I love it. I love him so much. And that line in Sad Sack Wasp Trap, where he's talking to the dancers from Bushwick. It's one of the uh, best moments in the show. It's absolutely I mean, one of really, the best moments in the show. He pretends to know where Bushwick is. But then, and Brendan or Gabby may remember the line more specifically, but he's like, you know, you and me, we aren't so different. He I says, get misunderstood he says, all the time. He says, people have a lot of preconceptions about me, too. <laughs> God, that's so fucking oh, He says that's some so line about, about, like, ending it uh, is. dependence on, on state welfare and let's just, like, free enterprise it out here for ourselves. And the guy's looking at him like... Yeah, yeah, sisters doing it for oh, themselves right, once again. Right. You may have just mentioned it, but let's take civil rights issues out of the federal government <laughs> hand. You no, know, I think Oriana Price could. States rights guy. I mean, it's yeah. 
it's disturbing and it's like like joe biden not even not even states rights like individual rights like he's full-on peter thiel psycho libertarian (laughs) freak yeah but why do you guys i I was genuinely kind of confused why or or, i don't know i don't know if uh there's anything to read into it but why willa kind of demeaned him like that i mean she certainly was right but um oh my gosh Dude, she's been in, like, the Texan wilderness, like, with just Connor. Yeah, is it just months. that she's just, like, completely she's sick of him? She's losing it, yeah. Her no cont- Starbucks, only pods that he has <laughs> yeah. on hand. Yeah, okay, her contempt think- for him is just reaching unprecedented heights. It's bound to burst. I-, I also think that, like, on some level, she might be like, well, what are you going to do about it? Like, you know, like, of course that we you know what i mean like she, she feels she i think she might be like well you you've already accepted that you're you suck right like she might yeah. not even be aware that she's doing something like mean or that her her nakedness and her hatred is like right see it seems is, like it was like an almost an inside joke between them when she said it um when she said oh you know he doesn't do anything but clearly it wasn't you know because connor's very hurt but you can interpret it that she like means it like as a compliment. It's like, oh, you do you do nothing, which is great. You have all this freedom to you know crack the nut of happiness or whatever it <laughs> is. Yeah. Uh, but you don't really do anything. And then, like, uh, but the, really, the I final... think it's just that she has bottomless contempt for this guy. Right. She really does. In the final like kind of scan of the of the episode, she's up writing and and she yeah. has been talking more about like her you know role as a serious playwright. And Connor's just kind of like sulking in the bed. Yeah, I mean, maybe I don't know if she's going to come back. I don't see how that relationship lasts much longer, except there is a financial arrangement Money. for her that is going to continue th- to be worth it. But I think it, I think it lasts because he's a he's he's a worm. He's also mm-hmm. a worm. He's a worm in the same way that Tom's relationship will last as long as Shiv lets it last. And, you know, like, as long as, you know, Tom, Tom's going to explode, keep exploding, sort of. <laughs> but, like, he's still going to keep going back to her because he doesn't have any other options. And Connor doesn't have any other options either. Like, he's going to, like, keep begging this woman who spits on him to, like, be share his weird on his weird, like, survivalist compound. And she's going to be like, okay, and then, like, treat him like shit. Yeah, or maybe he'll just find, like, another woman to pay to be around him if she i don't even know if he's that crafty i don't (laughs) even know if he's that crafty to find literally another woman yeah he only met willa through roman (laughs) i knew i know roman said that he knew her from like being an it girl like in the last decade but did he introduce them i'm pretty sure he said that yeah yeah well i mean connor is like not (laughs) not emotionally intelligent and not emotionally competent. So so he probably uh, he would need somebody to introduce him. But speaking about the, you know, women on this show and the the wives and girlfriends and ex-wives, I just want to talk really quickly about the confrontation between Rada and Ken because I think it also speaks to Ken's um, current state of mind really quite well. So so Ken is definitely still um Still off the wagon. We see him drinking. We see him um, doing a line in the bathroom. And he comes out and he sees Rava. So Rava, you know, has obviously been invited to the wedding. Their kids are there. And it's such an interesting contrast from the way that Ken has treated her throughout the season as someone that he, you know, really needs and um, is dependent on and kind of last 
source of, of comfort aside, you know, from the drugs, which are in themselves, a, you know, comfort seeking behavior, everything that Ken does is in some way comfort seeking. But, you know, in this scene, he's definitely disinhibited, definitely more of an asshole, um, which is probably what he's aiming for by using the drugs. Um, you know, he's, it's obviously um, not something that's going to last, as any addict will tell you, but in the moment, um, it's making him feel like more of a badass. So rather than, you know, caving to Rava when she sort of gently brings up the idea that, you know, hey, your lawyers have gotten quiet on me. Um, you think you can give him a little nudge? And, you know, she's she's being as nice about it <laughs> as she can. You know, and instead of confiding in her what's going on with um, the impending takeover, um, you know, as opposed to what he would have done at any other point in the season, you know, by by um, her making herself available, um, he pushes her away and he's a total dick to her. And um, he says embarrassing shit too, keeping a character like, I just did like 120 push-ups. You know, he sort of mocks her and he says, you know, your lawyers are actually trying to fuck me over and you can do your whole Lottie fucking da smile. And she's like, have a fucking line if you need one that bad. And he's like, everything isn't always what you think. You can't see inside me just because I've told you the occasional, you know, and he just looks so bad here. Yeah, this sort of brings us to what's going on with Ken and and, and Stewie and um, and Sandy. But I really was um, was struck by this interaction between the two of them. And I know that I've been a, <laughs> a little bit of a Natalie Gold apologist. I, I, I like Rava. I think she's decent. Again, you know, anybody marrying into that family maybe is a little suspect, but I think she's, you know, for someone who is married to somebody like Kendall and the hell he's probably put her through and their kids and, um, you know, her being the primary um, parent, you know, we see Ken with his kids, but it's very clear that he doesn't spend that much time with them. Um, you know, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting to see the two of them come to blows. The Kendall Defender has logged on, and I believe <laughs> I believe that he finally called Rava out on her shit. Yeah, in you a way. Know, that's true. That's true. It, she does have that faux smile, faux flirt. I mean, she she plays this game with him, which is gross to me. But again, you know, I have such a soft spot for Kendall. Um, and so I'm glad he actually kind of had an authentic conversation with her as he did with his family, uh, particularly Logan in, in episode seven, Austerlitz. And wasn't, they weren't just talking. He, it was an authentic confrontation. And he said what he meant instead of them bullshitting each other, which is what I think they've done. Yeah, the Kendall scenes in this episode... Basically, there's not that much of him in here because obviously the finale is where most of kind of the Kendall action comes from. Uh, but basically, he's here sort of starting to outline this process of the bear hug, which I guess we should explain briefly for listeners because the the show doesn't go into too much detail about it. Um, I think that's also intentional because they don't think the details are super important, but just so people know basically what they're attempting to do what Stewie and Sandy and Ken are attempting to do. A bear hug is a, an attempt to buy controlling shares of a company at a high enough price at a favorable enough price that 
the company is basically forced to sell because they have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders to take a good deal. Um, so since Stewie and Sandy are already have um, so many shares from Stewie's um, from the loan that Stewie made in episode three, um, they're already in a very good position to make this bear hug and their bear hug letter they're referring to is a letter by which they simply make that offer um, the, which will force Logan to the, to the table um, to make a deal with them and sell them the company. I mean, they, they, they imply a lot of things about there. There's a lot of technical things that happen in the show that are incredibly accurate, like their entire depiction of uh, of venture capital and how venture capital works is, is shockingly accurate and good. Um, but I like that it doesn't overtake any of the actual details of the show because the mechanisms are important, but they don't have to be explained to you because that's not good TV. Yeah. Yeah. And in some ways, what's happening in this episode is a little bit contrived where um, a something has to happen to get Logan to the wedding, even though he said he's not going. So Logan sort of decides that he has to go because there will be negative PR fallout. Um, I also think he has an agenda having to do with Shiv um, and what he what he wants for their relationship, either out of genuine love or just that he wants her to be by his side and he wants to win her loyalty back. Um, so he goes to uh, the wedding and at the same time, Ken lets it slip to Frank because of his uh, inevitable insecurities about the whole deal, what's going on. And since now Frank uh, is potentially the source of a leak that's going to make the deal public. Sandy has to move forward with the letter that weekend while Logan is at the wedding. So it sets up this very uh, this very real and immediate confrontation where Ken is going to be forced to directly confront his father face-to-face with this at his sister's wedding. And he's what? predictably very upset about it and says, you know, that he needs more time. He's not ready. Um, so it sort of sets in motion everything that's about to go down in the finale but um yes kate sorry go ahead no the frustrating part for me i get frustrated with kendall's well is that you know he and stewie met up at a pub before arriving at this castle and stewie specifically who has much better um business sense than than Kendall, no doubt, and specifically says, don't go, like, don't go to Frank. And Kendall, God bless him, again, the insecurity, he, he goes to Frank uh, because he needs to be reassured that, you know, he'll be CEO, et cetera, et cetera. But like, Kendall, 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 you just don't have that killer instinct. The other thing I thought, during that scene, Frank kind of asked him if he could get in on the deal. Yeah, I noticed that on the rewatch. Yeah, and again, not to get to, like so hypothetical, whatever, but do you think had he offered Frank a position, it would have changed? I mean, it's irrelevant at this point, but, you know, it, it did have me curious. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, I'm a Frank defender. Um, um, I, he's, he's not perfect, but I do think that he, like, he does, he cares about the family, clearly. He cares about the kids. I don't know. I think that would be just be, like, a step too cynical to, to really scan for someone like Frank. 
Yeah, but Frank was also willing to vote against Logan and no confidence. Yeah, but he did that to to support Kendall. I think he has a, a very paternal fondness and relationship with Kendall that Kendall is, isn't even aware of that we see throughout the show. But, but yeah, I mean, do, we don't really ever know for sure if the leak is from Frank. We just, you know, we have to assume, right? Well, oh, no, I mean, I'm we pretty see sure him, they we... make it explicit. And we see right? him talking to Jerry, so... Right, he and, is talking to Jerry, yeah, he tells her. And then someone else, whether it's Stewie or, I don't think it's Logan, but mentions that Frank had been, you know, talking about it to the Sandy, Canadians. Sandy, Sandy says it on the phone. Oh, okay, Sandy, thank you. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk just a little bit about Logan in this episode and what he's up to at the end, because I think that the way the episode is edited... Um, especially in the last couple minutes, um, really made me think about this being mainly an episode, again, about Tom and Shiv, but also about Shiv's relationship um, with her father, which has been kind of a running theme throughout the season that's kind of remained in the background as Ken's storyline has been at the forefront. Um, but in this episode, uh, as I said, you know, Logan seems to make an excuse that he has to go to the wedding because there's going to be bad PR fallout if he's the asshole who doesn't go to um, his daughter's wedding. Um, but then that scene on the staircase where Shiv confronts Logan and, you know, holds the, you know, the death pit, the cruise scandal over his head um, is interesting because we've just seen in the prior episode Logan threatening Shiv with the implication that he'll leak the story about her and Nate um, if he doesn't get guilt, if she doesn't get guilt to back off. So when she comes at him with a threat of her own, he doesn't bring that up again. He seems almost, I think, satisfied that she has stepped up to the plate and delivered and really confronted him on his own level. And at the very end of that episode, um, you know, the voiceover is Ken talking about, you know, whether his dad's going to make a deal. And he says, no, there's no way, you know, my dad's going to be hostile. You know, he, he'll never make a deal. And there, and in episode eight, again, there was that dialogue about how, you know, it's no good if he's smiling. Logan never wants the other party to be happy in a deal. So why has he made this deal with Gil in which both parties seem to be satisfied? It's because Logan got something out of it that Gil wasn't thinking about. He got the loyalties of his daughter back where they are both sort of, they now have this kind of mutual respect and he's in the car with her at the end saying, you know, he's a good guy talking about both Tom and Gil, the good guy being this guy that they've screwed over in Gil's case by winning Shiv away from him. And in Tom's case by, you know, marrying into this family where Shiv is going to continue to kind of fuck around on him. So that's the deal. I think that Logan is striking in this episode and looking at what the promotions for season two, it looks like Shiv is definitely in Logan's corner. Yeah, I think, you know, we've said this in the past, but of all the kids, Shiv is definitely the most like Logan. Um, but she's been she's been employing sort of a similar business acumen and approach to her work, but it's been in direct conflict with Logan. I mean, in a quite literal way. Um, but I think the disconnect has been um, if they work together, Shiv might actually be everything that Logan is looking for in terms of one of his kids taking over the business. And clearly Ken can't do it. Roman can't do it. Connor's not going to do it. Um, and it seems like from the start, um, he sort of sees Shiv as the most savvy and, and 
Um, he's intrigued by the fact that she's trying to distinguish herself by working with one of his enemies. Um, it's a page right out of his playbook. So he's almost like, you know, you have to think about the way that Logan sees his kids as a product of himself. And I think he sees someone like Shiv for, with all her ruthlessness, you know, and her flaws as um, someone like him. So, you know, he's finally been able to, um, you know, maneuver to, to bring her into his side and to get her to sort of give up this crusade to, um, you know, take down daddy. And I think that last scene, the morning of the wedding when they're in the car and he says, you know, he's a good man, Pinky. And, and she looks a little bit, a little bit sad, um, you know, a little bit embarrassed. And I think, Brendan, we talked about it earlier. I think you had a very, very interesting, you know, hypothesis or um, thought about this, this line. But for me, the way... I sort of read it was him sort of giving her approval for everything. Like she, he's a good guy. Like she, he tore Tom apart in Austerlitz along with Shiv, but in a way that was, that was truthful. I mean, Shiv is with Tom, you know, because he's beneath her and because it it affords her power um, and, and, and safety. And I think this was his way of kind of, making amends for all of that and saying, you know, he's a good guy, but not really so much that he's a good guy, but that it's a smart pick that it's a kind of pick I would make. I get it. You're not going to be able to be faithful to him. I think that's another thing they have in common. I can't imagine Logan was faithful throughout his marriages. And I think, you know, it's sort of the nod of approval and it's, it's sort of a more subtle way of, of essentially capturing back his daughter and bringing her under his, his realm which we see happen in episode 10 but you know as these kids are resisting logan resisting logan he finds ways to bring them back in and i think um this was sort of the end of that arc um with logan sort of giving her the approval it's okay that you're working with Gil. it's okay that you know you're gonna marry this guy and brendan i know you had a slightly different take on that but i also if i may interject i also think that it's very clear that logan respects shiv far far more in how he reacts to their different machinations Mm -hmm. like shiv he's like that's a coherent plan and kendall he just like judo throws him over and gives him a little sweetie sweetie hug and (laughs) takes care of it you know like basically like coddles and and you know uh, chides him uh he sees shiv as 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 a successor he does not see kendall as a successor he sees kendall as somebody he can control who he loves but or, or something approaching love, but right. like Shiv is is actually right. who he, re- She's who the he only respects. One. Yeah. She's the only one. We're coming up on time here. I wanted to make one last point about um, uh, Greg and Tom in this episode because this is also in the final minutes. Um, this great little farcical scene of Greg uh, surprisingly feeling this loyalty to Tom to tell him um, what he's observed of Nate and Shiv's closeness. And the idea that Shiv is having an affair. So he feels the need to go and tell him. And the way that Tom reacts to this really just put me in mind of the angry way that Tom reacts to this reminded me of, you know, all the way back when he first learns about the death pit and he tries to tell Kendall. And Kendall says, my dad always said the guys he liked the most in his company were the ones who ate the shit for him and he never even knew about it. And I think what he's expecting Greg to do in that scene is to do the same thing to eat the shit and not tell him the thing that he doesn't want to know. Um, but of course Tom doesn't have that same remove by nature of 
class of birth of status that Ken does. You know, he's a he's a pretender. He's somebody who's marrying into this, and he has to live in the muck with Greg, and that's where they both end up tumbling down to the ground and wrestling um, in this very, you know, another instance of one of these very petty squabbles that stands in for the death pit for something grander and more violent and, ter- and scary. It's also just good comedy. It's a, it's just like a well-acted <laughs> scene. It's like a well-blocked yeah. scene. It's just, it's just like fucking stupid and messy and like even the staging of how they're running, like how they're moving in the scene and how what he's wearing and everything. It's just like it's really funny. <laughs> Yeah, he starts, yeah, like, what... jogging a little bit awkwardly at the end. <laughs> Why do rich people love jogging so much? In, like, and they love jogging in, like, the the countryside in really right. stupid ways. It's it's very, very funny. It's like, um, uh, has anybody seen the movie A Most Violent Year with Oscar Isaac? No, but it's on my part of it. <laughs> I'm just thinking of all the scenes in that movie of... Oscar Isaac, you know, jogging and coming across something terrible. <laughs> that was also like the eighties, right? Um, it's the seventies. It's a very seventies okay. movie. Yeah. Yeah, jogging was pretty in. I mean, I guess it's always been in. It was the the titular most violent year. <laughs> if if we're doing some closing thoughts, something I thought was interesting, um, which are both really important plot points in the finale. Uh, is when Roman is talking about his shuttle launch and how it's accelerated. And then we hear the exact same terminology uh, when Stewie's discussing the bear hug with, with Kendall and how it's also been accelerated. And both, as we know, because we've seen it, massively fail and um, don't work. <laughs> yeah, these people suck. Um, no, I mean, like, it's, 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 um, it's, it's a more subdued episode. I'm very happy that I, uh, you guys had me on to talk it out, but I also think that, yeah, there is a, the way, the ways in which these people hate each other is, is constantly fascinating. So I'm glad somebody's, uh, somebody's out there fighting the good fight and analyzing how precisely, uh, convoluted their relationships are. So good on you. The world's only succession podcast at the moment. The only one. That's right. <laughs> Keeping keep so our hate pure is the slogan. I have a couple of just like throwaway lines. I just want to give a shout out to the wonderful writing team of succession. So oh! <laughs> Tom says to Greg when they're talking about Tabitha in the chapel, he goes, it's just one of those weird urban things. Like when you go see stand up <laughs> comedian and the comedian is your dentist. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I like how the, Tom that's the plot of it. the marvelous Ms. Maisel. <laughs> or like actually how Greg phrased it. He's like, isn't that the woman that made you swallow your own cum? Whereas like he was doing, Tom was doing the, you know, um, narrative control on that during in Prague in episode eight that like he was excited to swallow his own load but greg just you know she made you swallow your own load that's not very wedding-y um <laughs> yeah tom, that's tom said that twice in this episode it's so sad tom just like cannot have an event um that's just pure and wholesome it's uh it's just all awful a bachelor party wedding rehearsal dinner another great line is is shiv saying to jerry pretty sure i can persuade him that a dirty lbj gets more done than a clean mcgovern um, just 
<laughs> Shiv just being rotten. Um, Logan says to Gil, I didn't make human nature, but I know what they read and what they watch. Don't tell me about people. I'd go flat broke in a week if I didn't. And then Logan's um, kind of closing soliloquy with um, Gil the next morning when they're making the deal. And he says, I don't like being outside of the U.S. for too long. Refined. Slaves, cotton, sugar. This country is nothing but an offshore laundry for turning evil into hard currency. And now it lies here living off its capital, sucking off immigrants to turn it and stop any bed sores. And just uh, for coming from Logan. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the kind of convoluted dialogue that it takes Brian Cox to pull off. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, <laughs> like me, okay, I'm, it, I'm like exhausted, but he just, uh, you know. He really just spits it out. Yeah. When uh, Tom says to Shiv that his mom that her mom just knifed him. It totally uh, had echoes for me of episode two shit show at the fuck factory. When Greg says Shiv is just mugged me. So I think Shiv does take after her mom. She's certainly quite a combination. And then finally, Brendan, you've spoken about this line a lot, so I'll just uh, mention it. Um, But when Logan looks at Kendall, they've had their whole, little confrontation and he just says I'm a just a lovely guy and his delivery is so perfect on it and Brendan I know you've spoken about it before so <laughs> I don't really have too much to add I just think it's a really nice delivery that Brian Cox gives there and I think um if you think about the way that Logan kind of started the season and where he's been um, you know, there's periods of illness and senility and dementia that he's appeared to have. Um, in that scene, you know, he really does seem like, you know, the devil in the flesh and somebody who is, you know, back fully in control of his various faculties. Uh, and it's quite, uh, it's quite spooky. Cox is quite, uh, quite devilish. And I don't know if we've talked on the show before about the, the YouTube clip that you can find of him doing Titus Andronicus. Um, just a, a very, very scary presence when he when he uh, has the will to be. Um, and uh, I think that, that sets us up nicely for the confrontation to come uh, between Logan and Kendall in next week's episode where there are a few scenes between them that are varying degrees of emotionally violent and uh, momentous for this series. And I, I greatly look forward to discussing them with, uh, with our mystery guest who will be joining us at that time. Chris, do you have anything to plug? Uh, I don't know. Follow me on Twitter, I guess. You probably... I don't know. You were all friends on here. Who knows? I, I, I have no plugs. What's your handle? Uh, it's Papa Pichu. It's a very dumb uh, Curse of Monkey Island reference. <laughs> uh, but I'm also a gamer, as, as is my curse. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have anything Kendall to plug. Kendall may be a gamer. Is Kendall a gamer? <laughs> He I think Roman's the Roman's the Roman's the, gamer. Roman, no, Roman's the gamer. Kendall's Roman's gamer. online. Yeah, Roman's I, online and thus a gamer. Okay. <laughs> you know Kendall you Kendall Kendall like probably like plays Call of Duty occasionally. Roman <laughs> has Roman has like a guy by him like a com- complex like overclocked PC and shit. But Kendall is like a just like has friends over and like <laughs> i don't know plays a fighting game but doesn't really like it you know what i mean like roman's the gamer kendall has adult onset gaming yes <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, folks. Uh, thanks so much for chatting. This has been the Roycast. We'll see everybody next time. Thanks, Bye. Chris. Bye. Thanks, Brian.